In the days and weeks and months following the resurrection of Jesus, we might think and assume that all of a sudden the world just became a better place and all pain stopped and all brokenness was healed and all hopelessness and disillusionment dissipated and dissolved away. But in reality, quite the opposite happened. There was fear among the disciples as they hid behind locked doors. There were questions and confusion as the disciples had breakfast with the risen Jesus along the shores of the sea. And there was disillusionment as these two men walked on the road to Emmaus and they shared about all that they had hoped would happen. And now it seemed in that moment just another con job, just another con job to get their hopes up. And all of these scenes, and probably more, are somewhat fascinating to observe, at least for me. Because note how quickly everyone in these scenes, followers and disciples, revert back to their fears, their disillusionment, their frustration, and even their hopelessness. It's as if the resurrection never happened. Or at least in that moment, they didn't believe or intend that it would happen. For many, life just went right on with no change, no hope, no expectation. Now, I can look at the disciples, and I can be hard on them because what I know, I can look back. But would I have been any different? Would I have responded any differently? Maybe I would have followed Jesus for those three years and promised my allegiance and offered my devotion, but after his execution, more than likely, I would have probably been a bit confused and even disappointed and promised myself I would never get caught up again in some movement where Someone comes along and promises, promises me that the world is going to be a different place and it's going to change and God's eternal presence is pressing in on us and has the potential to change my life. I probably wouldn't believe that. I might have said to myself, you know, I've learned my lesson this time. I'm just going to keep to myself, pay my taxes, keep my head down, listen to what the Romans say, follow the rules and make an honest living for my family and just keep to myself. And maybe I would have been one of those disciples who cowered behind a locked door for fear that I'm going to be arrested because I'd been identified with the group or the movement that followed Jesus. More than likely, I would have been one of the two disciples traveling on the road to Emmaus, and when Jesus comes alongside, they don't recognize him as Jesus. Jesus asks, why are you so downcast? And incredulously, one of them, Cleopas, responds and asks, are you unaware of the things that haven't taken place over the last few days? In other words, in today's language, do you live on another planet? Don't you have a clue? Where have you been? Now, in a kind of provocative fashion, Jesus asks in return, what things? Now, obviously, Jesus knew what things. And maybe Jesus simply needed to have Cleopas and his friends say it so they could articulate for themselves what they're feeling, experiencing, and processing. I don't know if you notice or not, but Jesus often asked more questions than he gave answers. Answers are helpful, but you know, questions often invite us to probe deeper into our soul and our experience. A good simple question can often uncover more in our soul than a very simple and easy answer. Think of some of the questions Jesus asks in his ministry with his disciples. Questions like, what are you looking for? Who do you say that I am? Do you want to get well? Why are you crying? And do you understand what I have done for you? My friend Trevor Hudson has written a wonderful little book entitled Questions God Asks Us. And he writes this, quote, A question has greater power to transform us than a straightforward answer, especially when it comes from God who knows exactly what questions to ask. 
And maybe in this simple exchange between Jesus and the two disciples, we can remember that questions are never our enemies. Rather, questions are this doorway and can be this doorway to deeper understanding and self-awareness. Answers are powerful, but they're often more powerful when they're preceded by questions and honest honest soul-searching and seeking, and especially when Jesus knows exactly what questions to ask in relationship to our own condition. Now back to the disciples. They proceed to tell Jesus all that had happened in the last few days about all their hopes and dreams in this person of Jesus because of his powerful deeds and words and how he was recognized by God and all the people as a prophet. And they recount how Jesus was handed over to be executed by their own chief priests and leaders. And then they offer this statement. We had hoped, they said, that he was the one who would redeem Israel. Now within that sentence are three words that often come, often come forth from the human soul, at least mine. And those three words are this, we had hoped. How many times in our lifetime have we uttered those words either verbally or in our prayers or in just deep sign, we had hoped? How often during the course of a day do those words rise up from our soul after we hear the morning news or we read the morning paper or after a conversation or we come away from the doctor's office? In our soul are those three words, we had hoped. There is, in the voice of these two men, a hint of disillusionment. And no doubt we've all been there. It's easy to get disillusioned. We feel we're turning the corner on the pandemic, and then we're asked to be just a bit more patient. We feel disillusioned. We feel we've moved beyond one mass shooting, and then we wake up to another one. We feel disillusioned. We see moments of peace, and then a conflict breaks out or a war breaks out and the world feels like that it's, that, that it's, that, that's the only answer to all the problems and we feel disillusioned. And even in relationships or congregations, we expect that all will be great and there'll never be any problems and there'll never be any disagreements or issues that involve hard discussions and then they arise and we feel just a little bit disillusioned. But rather than disillusionment being a negative, maybe in a counterintuitive way, disillusionment comes to us as a gift Even counselors will tell us that some disillusionment in a relationship or marriage can be a good thing because it burns off, if you will, all of the false expectations of how we think it should be or needs to be or how it's been. Disillusionment often invites us to face up to what is in front of us and the moment we are living in and in that moment begin to live in hope. Disillusionment says to me, focus less and what you think should have happened or what you think should be and live fully into the moment with continued hope and vision, realizing that we often can't truly see what can be until we're willing to deal with what really is. Disillusionment invites us to be in this moment, to experience what we're experiencing, to feel what we're feeling, to dive deep and to listen to what our soul is speaking to us, even when it feels like we're disillusioned and somehow we want to give up and we're just not hearing the news that we want to hear. Now, someone may say, it sounds awfully fatalistic, but I'd argue the opposite. Fatalism believes that nothing good will ever happen and that change will never happen, and this is how how it is, so get used to it. Hope, on the other hand, acknowledges this present reality and will even admit that it might be tough at a challenging place, but hope will trust that transformation can take place and that our lives and world can be a place of goodness and light. In his book, Turn My Morning Into Dancing, Henry Nouwen writes this, Fatalism is the prevailing attitude of most people, 
most of the time. It finds expression in statements like, nothing can be done about it, you can't change the world, you must be practical and realistic, you must accept reality. And this easily leads to resentment, bitterness, hopelessness, and despair. But then he adds this about hope. He writes, hope does not come from positive predictions about the state of the world, nor does hope depend on the ups and downs of our lives in its particulars. No, hope rather has to do with God. We have hope and joy in our faith because we believe that while the world in which we live is shrouded in darkness, God has overcome the world. And then he adds this final word. The basis of our hope has to do with the one who is stronger than life and suffering. Faith opens us up to God's sustaining, healing presence. A person in difficulty can trust because of a belief that something else is possible. To trust is to allow for hope. Now, In the story of these two men on the road to Emmaus, we read later that their eyes were opened and they recognized Jesus in their midst having dinner with them. They recognized him as the resurrected and risen Jesus. They recognized hope amidst their hopelessness. But even before that, they acknowledged that their hearts were burning within them and their hearts were on fire when Jesus spoke to them along the road and explained the scriptures to them. In other words, before they even fully recognized Jesus in their midst, their hearts began to be strangely warmed, as my Methodist friends would say. They began to experience a very deep longing and fire within their hearts. And their journey took them from disillusionment to hope as they recognized the risen Jesus in the midst of their struggle. That's where they found Jesus. That's where they encountered Jesus. In the very midst of their disillusionment, maybe even their fatalism, maybe even their hopelessness. But they felt within this burning, this warmth, this longing, this flame. I think it's possible that every day, every week, and even every month, we take that journey from disillusionment to hope. But here's the question. Am I willing to walk that journey completely? Or will I get stuck in disillusionment? And will I ignore the burning within my own heart and soul? Am I willing to risk hoping and trusting in the present reality of God in the here and now? Or will I simply numb out to the pain of the world and find a really comfortable resting place in cynicism and fatalism and tell myself, you know what? It is what it is, and nothing can be changed, and we just need to be practical and realistic. I believe the risen Jesus. I believe the risen Jesus comes alongside all of us in our struggles and disillusionment. I believe the risen Jesus comes alongside of us in those moments when our soul seems to say over and over we had hoped. I believe the risen Jesus comes alongside of us in all those moments, and when Jesus is present, we begin to sense within a fire a longing, a deep desire to not settle for the status quo, to not give up in the way that things are. But at that moment, we have a choice. We can douse those flames with the cold water of fatalism and indifference, or we can open up our souls and allow the oxygen of God's presence to fan the flames into a fire that both purifies our intentions and propels us into the world with a deepened hope and a renewed vision. On the day that I wrote this message, I woke up to another report of another mass shooting, this time in Indianapolis, Indiana. Reports are that eight people were killed, including the shooter. Just this past week, not too far from where I'm sitting, right here, where I'm making this recording, at around 10.30 p.m. at night, two cars 
engaged in a shootout with one another at the intersection of East Chester and Windover, just right next door to our property. In one car, two people were critically injured and one died. And eventually two, eventually two people were arrested and jailed. And in a matter of moments, five lives would literally change and transform forever and not for the good. And then I felt like those two guys on the road to Emmaus, but we had hoped, but I had hoped. I had hoped that we could start moving past this violence, that we wouldn't have to read these reports anymore. And I just wanted to shrink back into my disillusionment, my fatalism, and my cynicism and say, you know, it doesn't matter anymore. If they don't care, I don't care. Why should I? But then, honestly, I began to sense that spark in my heart and my soul, that strange but familiar warmth and burning, or that divine spark, as we Quakers like to say. And I sense that spark that says to me, don't give up. Don't give up. Because that's what the darkness of the world would like for you to do. Don't give in, for that's what the darkness would like for you to do. Don't give up hope, because the darkness would like nothing better for you than to no longer care. And I came to realize that a life that no longer cares and a life that no longer hopes is really no life at all. We may try to fabricate a life, but it has no soul. It has no passion. It has no energy if there is no hope. Only a life that risks hope, that risks possibilities and changes, energized with the life, capital L, with the life that is life. So here's my invitation, friends. Pay attention to your own soul. Be honest with yourself about your soul. Have you succumbed to fatalism and indifference? Do you find yourself saying over and over again, but we had hoped, but I had hoped? Or do you find that there's a fire, albeit maybe even a small one, there's a fire within your soul that seeks to burn away this indifference and ignite a renewed hope within you? And maybe that strange warmth within has nothing to do with how you show up in the world right now. Maybe it's more about you simply opening yourself up to the healing grace of God that brings relief and wholeness to the broken and painful parts of your life. Maybe this is a time for you to simply allow God's grace and love to heal your own hurts and love you back into wholeness, to simply rest in that love and allow yourself to be healed. There's a beautiful and familiar hymn titled, Spirit of God, Descend Upon My Heart. And the last verse reads this way. Teach me to love thee as thine angels love. One holy passion filling all my frame. The baptism of the heaven-descended dove. My heart an altar. And thy love the flame. So may our hearts be an altar for the flame of God's love. May our hearts be an altar for the flame of God's mercy and grace. And from this flame, from this fire... May we recognize the risen Jesus in our midst. And may we recognize the openings he has for us, much as the early Quakers and friends received spiritual openings that transformed their lives and propelled them into the world with a transforming witness, a witness that said both in word and deed, the world doesn't have to be this way, and it can be changed. And God has changed us, and now we believe that through us, God can change the world. May it be so. And may hope forever live on in our hearts. May hope forever live on in your heart. And in the midst of those moments in which you utter or pray or sigh, but I had hoped, 
may you discover or rediscover that warmth, that fire, that divine spark within you, that spark of God's grace and mercy that says we can begin again. You can hope. The risen Jesus is present. Let's take this journey, and I'll open your eyes up to all that is around you, to all the possibilities, to all the dreams, to all that can happen and all that can be in God's new creation and in God's grace and in God's mercy.